Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. At the end of this episode, there is a conversation with Dan Taberski, who is the executive producer and the host of a new investigative journalism podcast called The Line, which looks closely at the war crimes trial of Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, as well as a larger look at um, the use of special operations in American warfare, which I think you'll find fascinating. The, the podcast itself is is, is really quite something. But I think you also really enjoy this conversation with Dan. With that, Ravi, let's talk about the news. Well, obviously, the biggest news of the week is the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin. Uh, We had a separate podcast that we put up uh, on Tuesday night right after the verdict. So you could check that out. Uh, So we won't be talking about that today. Uh, Instead, what we want to do is really come back to the question of America's COVID response. And we hit a critical milestone uh, this past week where, uh, as Biden had promised, all adults are now eligible for the vaccine around the country, and we're administering more than 3 million doses every day. It's a, it's a figure that briefly has gone down in response to the pause in the J&J vaccine. Uh, but by and large, people who want the vaccine in this country can get it. And right now, over half of the U.S. adult population has received at least one dose, uh, one shot, and 32% have been fully vaccinated. But The problem is we're starting to run out of enthusiastic vaccine takers and we're starting to run into the skeptics. There's sort of two big populations left, the people who are kind of in a wait and see mode and then people who say they will never take the vaccine. And the trends here are a little worrying because there are certain counties in America that they just simply can't find anybody else to take the vaccine. Uh, And I think that we're going to start to see that pattern grow. Uh, And polling came out last week from Gallup to show just precisely who these people are. And it breaks down a partisan lines. 44% of Republicans say they do not intend to take the vaccine compared to only 8% of Democrats. Uh, and so Biden's kind of in a, a difficult place here because if he, the more he puts out public statements about taking the vaccine, and the more he tries, he may actually be making this look more partisan and driving more GOP members away from taking the vaccine. Jason, what should Biden be doing here, if anything, and what can we all be doing to try to encourage more people to take this vaccine? It is a really difficult position for him. I went back and I looked at some of the transcripts of this focus group that Frank Luntz did with uh, conservative voters who were hesitant to take the vaccine. And there were some themes. I mean, they were talking about it being untested. They're not sure. Uh, I have a couple of people I work with who are a little more conservative who are saying like they keep making jokes, but I think they're sort of 
only half kidding when they say like, when you all grow tails, like you, you won't be laughing at me. Right. And they're, they're exaggerating for effect. But what they are saying is they're kind of treating it like the iPhone, right? Like, or like any new piece of technology. They're saying, you know, I'm not going to get the first model. Most of the people I know who are not taking the vaccine, which is not a lot of people, but the ones I know, they don't sound like I'll never take it. They sound like I'm not doing it because it's been rushed. And when you look at, at the focus group that Frank Luntz did, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of, I'm uncertain about it. It's early. It was rushed. I don't trust it. I, I have not seen a lot of, I'll never take it. There is some of that, but you know, I'll never take it. I don't trust the government at all. And so I guess the challenge here is how do we cross that threshold? And I, look, I know it's annoying to have to make these arguments to, to people, but you don't get to write them off. Like we're not going to get to herd immunity unless we convince people who are very difficult to convince. So I guess the way to think about it is how do we convince people that it has been long enough and that the science is more proven than they think? You know, one of many bright spots here is that previously black and Latino populations were also much more likely to be skeptical. And they, they continue to be uh, above average skepticism, but um, you've seen pretty dramatic swings there. So in a recent poll, a different poll, 24% of, uh, of black uh, respondents and 22% of uh, Hispanic respondents said they didn't intend to take the vaccine. Um, those numbers were pretty dramatically uh, smaller than they were just a few months before that, where it was 41% and 34%. And so you're seeing like a concerted effort to reach those populations that's working. And I think like if you you dive in deep and the Biden administration has a, has a whole program for this, they've been working with pastors, they've been working with celebrities, they've been working with local leaders to try to get the message out. And it seems to be working. We still haven't seen it break through with GOP voters yet. And like you're saying, like it's I'm hearing similar things from people, which is, you know, I see people using humor. I see people using the language of freedom a lot. Like this is their freedom to make this decision. You're not seeing like cogent arguments about the science yet. One thing I wonder is, as as you'll see more and more requirements for people to have to show their vaccination to, to do certain activities. Like a good example is the Buffalo Bills announced that they're going to be having uh, people in the stadium next year, but you need to be vaccinated to go in. Or colleges like NYU just announced that, you know, in order to attend classes in person, you need to be vaccinated, which gets at another population of people who are uh, more vaccine hesitant, which are young people, right? Young people have been lagging the rest. Like, does that matter? You know, skeptics of the vaccine or disingenuous people politicizing and are trying to make this an issue of freedom. I think it's a hard argument to make. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not too worried about it politically because I don't think there are too many voters that are up for grabs for us that are going to really be motivated by that argument. But from a public health perspective, putting the politics aside, I am worried about this becoming another flashpoint when the consequences of not being vaccinated are stark and are going to be pretty stark, like whether you can go back to school whether you can attend um, sporting events, whether you can get on an airplane. And that's when you're going to see, I think, like attempts from the right wing and some disingenuous actors to try to stir up like a Tea Party-like resistance to this where people will start getting angry because they can't do what they want to do without the vaccine. Well, the irony is what you're going to see are GOP state legislatures trying to pass laws that tell private entities, sports venues, that sort of thing, you can't prohibit people from coming in, which is ironic because it's 
like the opposite of everything else that conservatism seems to stand for. But I, I think you're totally right that it, it won't be right away, but that, you know, when we return to having events in, you know, I mean, like we're having events now, like you, you can go to a Royals game, you just, the, you know, the, the stadium's not at full capacity, that kind of thing. But when, when over time, if more venues are saying you can't come in without it, I do think that whether people admit it or not, that will that will be very persuasive for them because they'll just be tired of not being able to go to stuff. But in addition to that, I think when you look at this, it's basic conservatism, right? I mean, just small C, they're just in a weird way. These people are being conservative about whether or not to get this shot. And what it reminds me of a lot is when you think about so-called right to work laws, which this idea that, you know, you should have the choice and well, that's their framing, but the idea of when there is an organized union workplace, that there should be people who don't have to join the union. But what that actually ends up meaning is they benefit from everything that the people negotiate for in the union, but they don't pay the dues, which just weakens the union, which is why conservatives push it. But this reminds me of that in the sense that it's people saying like, look, uh, the world's going to start opening up again because so many people have gotten the vaccine and I'm far less likely to get coronavirus because so many people have gotten the vaccine, but I'm not going to go ahead and get the vaccine. It's it's this sort of tragedy of the commons. And, uh, and so I think it is very difficult to persuade people. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. It comes down to people will miss opportunities or be left out of things combined with we hopefully get to a point where people go, okay, it's been long enough and people around me who got the vaccine seem fine. And the other thing that has to be kept in mind here is when you're when you're trying to understand how 40 plus percent of Republicans could say, no, I'm not going to do it. I bet it's very hard to understand if you've exclusively during the last year lived in, in a place where people take this very seriously. But if you live in a part of the country that I'm guessing at least 40 plus percent of Republicans live in, where even though, yes, there have been people in their community who have died of COVID, nobody's really acted any different in a lot of those places, right? Like there's a lot of rural communities across this country or even like exurban, if not suburban communities where people haven't been wearing masks. They haven't been required to, so they haven't been. Maybe they go into a store that requires it, so they do. And particularly like if, if you're a farmer, if you are somebody who you you pretty much you either go to your workplace and only your workplace and you, you don't spend a lot of time uh, with other people, particularly when social events have been shut down over the last year, it's more understandable when you put yourself in that place to where the same people who were like, yeah, you know, I don't really wear a mask or not because they were ideological about it, just because the people around them weren't. You know, if the people around them aren't getting the vaccine or in a hurry to do it, it's understandable how it doesn't seem like a pressing need to them. It reminds me a little bit, and, you know, Republican friends of mine are going to hate this analogy, but, you know, you're a parent. I used to be a school principal. I often found that in these particularly intractable situations, the worst thing you can do to a teenager is show them how much you care that they change their behavior. It's almost like if you're like, hey, I'm going to be a little hands off about this. I'm going to let you come to this conclusion on your own. I'm not going to whine to you. I'm not going to be upset at you because that's only going to push you away even more. I think the more that those of us who really believe in the science and want people to take the vaccines are just like, hey, the incentives are what they are now. 
I hope you come along. I'm not going to preach to you anymore about this because that seems to be driving you away. And the, the memes of owning the libs seem to be like part of this motivation. I'm just going to put my hands up and say, look, I hope you get there. And there, there are different costs that you're going to have to bear if you don't get vaccinated, but I'm not really going to talk too much more about it. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think a good place to end this is, look, yes, 40 some percent of Republicans in this poll are saying this. But we should keep in mind that the majority of Americans want and are going to get this vaccine, the majority of American adults. Like, we, I don't want to freak out too much. And I agree with you that we're going to see these numbers come down. I, I have met a lot of Republicans who are big Trump people who, you know, they'll start out meetings by because this is kind of a thing that happens in meetings now. You walk in, everybody's wearing a mask. And then they'll say, hey, I've had both my shots and it's been more than two weeks. And everybody goes, oh, OK, cool. And then you, you sit apart, but you can take the mask off. I mean, literal Republican politicians like state legislators who I've met with. So th this is not it's quite literally not the majority of people. Right. Yeah. One last thing on this, which is like in getting to the psychology of this, Derek Thompson in the Atlantic had a good article this past week. Uh, where he talked about just the irrationality of continued mask mandates for people outside and why it's really important for us to revisit issues like this. Uh, and basically what he was saying is it's 19 times more likely that you get the virus indoors without a mask than outdoors. And it's time for us to, to start peeling back the layers of these restrictions, not just because it's inconvenient and uncomfortable to wear masks outside when it doesn't seem to, to be much of a risk, but because actually these types of illogical mandates continuing actually feeds the resistance to other measures that are sens sensible. And he, was, he cites a lot of data and he gives a lot of his reasoning on that. And he talks about some things that even happen in like liberal urban centers where he was talking about how like he'll watch somebody wearing a mask outside, get into a restaurant, sit down in an enclosed space, take <laughs> off the mask, which I see every day. Yeah. Um, and he says... He, he says it's like watching somebody in a parked car put on their seatbelt and then the minute it starts driving, take it off. <laughs> um, and so I think like the more we're able to revisit this stuff and, and not be sanctimonious about it and say, all right, what is really necessary at this point as we head into this summer, right? And start to peel back the layers of those, the more I think that the sensible regulations and, um, and the talk about sensible acts that people could take will take hold. Well, there has to be a reward system. There has to be an incentive system, right? Like if not, if, if mandates and, and all, all of these protocols don't change in relation to the increase in vaccination, then there's very little incentive for people to feel like it's important for more people to get vaccinated. So that, that makes perfect sense to me. Does it make sense that the same company controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private phone conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of the internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. 
What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app on your phone or your computer, you tap one button and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN that we trust to keep us safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash majority54. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash majority54 to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash majority54 right now to learn more. The best bacon, the best steak, the best chicken, and the best salmon you'll ever eat won't come from the grocery store. You'll only find it on the family farm and caught by independent Alaskan fishermen. That's why you need moinkbox.com. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com M54 to get a year of ground beef for free, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel anytime. The fact is, is that food that is grown in an ethical way, not in a big you know, corporate agribusiness way, but on a family farm, it just tastes better. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash M54 right now and listeners to the show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you've ever tasted, but for a limited time. It's spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash M54. That's moinkbox.com slash M54. So um, in other news, uh, in a, I think a, in a news item that has been largely overlooked this week, uh, the Biden administration teased a little bit of their part two of this Build Back Better agenda, uh, where they're, they're signaling that they're going to unveil a $1 trillion new spending plan that both extends the child tax credits that we've talked about previously, but also allocate money for family leave uh, and Jason, I know this is something that you've been talking about privately for a while and something that you wanted to elevate for this podcast. It's just about how screwed up America is as it relates to family leave and, and the way that we incentivize uh, people to take time off to take care of their kids. What do you think of this? I know we don't have a lot of details, but how should we frame this issue? Like, What, what, what is America's family leave situation compared to other countries right now? Well, yeah, that's what's had me thinking about it so much lately. So Diana has a uh, a good friend who she she works with a little bit uh, who lives in Canada, and they do like these once a week Zoom meetings for their work. And uh, she uh, her friend just had a baby, and so over the over the course of the last nine months, obviously, this has been getting closer and closer in time. And one of the elements that was interesting to me was she was planning her work around this and trying to get her projects done because in Canada, there's 12 months of paid parental leave and you can split that up. You can do six months for each parent. You could do both of you take the six months uh, at the same time. You could 12 months for one person and and it's pretty generous. I think it's like $2,000 a month or something and then employers uh, and that's from the government and then employers can pay on top of that, like, which is a recruiting thing, right? Employers can say, Hey, uh, you know, if you're here and you go on 12 months of leave, we will make up the difference in your salary, uh, from that $2,000 in the time. So you don't lose anything. And when I first heard it being an American, a liberal, yes, but an American, I was like, wow, that is nuts. 
And then I thought about it for a second. I was like, no, that is, we're nuts. And, you know, and then, and then you think about it. We are, I think, the only industrialized nation at this point that doesn't have some form of paid parental leave. Look, having a baby, literally having a baby is super hard. Parenting a baby is super hard. I actually, you know, we're very fortunate in that we can be very flexible in our work and and everything. Um, Most people are not in that situation. I do not know how anybody in America has a baby and keeps a job. I actually don't know how people do that. So this is so overdue. You know, it's 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 hard to figure out, and we're going to talk to our, for our listeners in the next few weeks because uh, so much of the, you know, the rubber is going to hit the road on so much of the Biden agenda over the next few weeks, and so we're gonna we're gonna wind up coming back to this. But I think, you know, this is something that that could conceivably be in reconciliation because it's largely a budget thing. Not it's different than the voting rights bill in that sense, and so um, you could see this pass. You know, this is the kind of stuff that Democrats, if they do, can change the perception of the party. You know, it's it's the kind of stuff that actually improves people's lives in a tangible way almost right away. And so I'm hoping they can get this done. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about closing the inequality gap. I mean, if you are if you're an hourly worker or if you're just somebody who, you know, makes 50, 60, even even let's say 100,000 a year in this country and that's your household income and you have a baby your your economic situation could not be more challenging in when compared to you know somebody who makes 200 250k a year like it, it it is such a stark difference and so just stepping in and at least partially taking away that challenge for working families i just think makes an enormous difference in people's lives and it it does a lot more to try and close that gap. Um, even if it's not an enormous amount of dollars uh, to go to that individual family, like it's, it's just practically, it makes so much sense. So today we are going to have a conversation with Dan Taberski, who's with me. Um, he is best known for his investigative journalism podcasts, uh, Missing Richard Simmons, Surviving Y2K, Running From Cops. He's currently the executive producer and the host of The Line, which Dan, I'm going to let you characterize it in a second. But, you know, here's how I would describe uh, the show, which is that it's about the war crimes trial of Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher. But it's really about special operations and the effects of war in the modern era. But I mean, you tell me if if I got close there. That's it. You did it better than I would. Uh, it it started out as a as a way to look. Uh, it started out as a, as as looking at the Eddie Gallagher trial, the war crimes trial um, that that went down in 2019. Um, but as we started talking to special operators, uh, we sort of quickly realized that the Gallagher trial itself was a way to look at what's going on with the Navy SEALs. Uh, and so the two stories in the podcast, it's six episodes long, the two stories about the SEALs and the Forever Wars and Eddie Gallagher and his war crimes trial and, and what Alpha Platoon said he did in Mosul, uh, they sort of tack back and forth and complement each other in that way, yeah. Did you initially become interested in this story during the trial or before? Or I guess really my question is what drew you to telling this story in the first place? Well, this is the first podcast that I've ever done that was not my original idea. 
Uh, and uh, it was uh, Apple and uh, and Alex Gibney's company, Jigsaw Productions, uh, approached me and asked me if I would be interested in sort of tackling this. Um, just the subject. Uh, nobody – we had no access. There was no access to anybody yet. It was all just sort of theoretical. And I kind of just spent a month reading about it and thinking about it. Um, and uh, it, um, it grabbed me really quickly um, – for one, uh, when the trial was going on, I just assumed that I knew exactly what was happening by reading what I was reading in the newspaper, which is not the case. I just assumed like the, the minute a New York Times prints like a multi-page story about what a Navy SEAL chief, what, what fellow SEALs say a Navy SEAL chief is doing in Mosul during deployments, I believe it. Uh, and 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 so I, I went in thinking, of course he's guilty. It's just a, it's just a matter of the trial sort of shaking, shaking out the truth. Uh, and then and then when it all fell apart, I just sort of thought that something went wrong. So I, I did think that was interesting. Once you start piecing together the actual story, uh, it is so much more complicated than than what what you read. At the same time, where I whereas me and a lot of other people would have read the newspaper and thought, oh, he's one hundred percent guilty. At the same time, I was kind of fascinated by the people on the other side who were defending him and saying he is 100% not guilty, but implying, does it even matter if he <laughs> yeah. is? Yeah, like, uh, well, but if he did it, that's okay, too, uh, right. was, a, was a huge part of, of the narrative. And it was, that's okay, too. It was like, because we send people to war, and then we don't... I mean, it's basically Jack Nicholson's speech at the end of A Few Good Men. Right. Totally. I mean, that's basically their defense. It's like, don't question yeah. the way I provide this freedom. Yeah, totally. And I kind of understand that feeling. I can understand why they would feel that way. I mean, uh, they are doing something that people like me, you just have no concept of it. You just have no concept. Uh, and I, I feel I've got a taste of it. Like I've watched hours of platoon videos from from their deployment and I've talked to over 50 special operators and I spent a, I spent a long time talking to Gallagher Um and so I feel like I have maybe a sense, but but I do understand these people who are having these really rarefied experiences. I do understand the idea that like you're not you're not going to tell me how to do my job. On the flip side, of course you have to tell them how to do that. There has to be parameters as to how people act. Yeah, that's why we have civilian leadership of the military, right? I mean, otherwise yeah. you're a totally different country. Um, yeah. So the show is called The Line, and it is largely about this theme of there's a line and whether or not you cross it. There's even an episode entitled The Curvy Line and introduces yeah. the concept of, of, you know, where that line goes and does it move. I can see, you know, why you certainly why you chose to focus on that narrative, but illuminate for those listening who haven't heard it yet. And I think maybe just start with like the sheepdog narrative, like how special operators see this line and the question of whether to cross it. Let me start by saying I think I think after the war on terror, after 9-11, after the war on terror started, you know, the Navy SEALs used to be sort of a, a break glass in case of emergency type force. And, and after that, they really became what, what, what a lot of people call the tip of the spear. And so um, where, where they were going out and the military and the government and effectively the American people were using covert warfare – um, the fact that what they could do could sort of happen behind the scenes and, and wouldn't be sort of interrogated as much as other things. The fact that they could do direct action and do it quickly and act efficiently instead of sort of, you know, taking months and months to sort of set up battalions and here's the front lines. And and so and so I will say that the way we set up war in general it has a lot to do with the way that SEALs see themselves, I think. Um, 
you know, the 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 saying among seals is there's sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. That's how the world is divided. And people like me are the sheep. We're just just regular people. And the wolves are the bad people, right? The, the wolves are ISIS or Osama bin Laden. And the sheepdogs are the guys in the middle, uh, people like the Navy SEALs who are there to protect the seal, who are there to protect the sheep, who are there to kill the wolves, but they're not really sheep and they're not really wolves. They're somewhere in the middle. Um, add on to that that some people think, fuck that, I'm a lion. Uh, and, and they go even farther and saying, I'm not waiting for the wolf to come to get the sheep. I'm going after the, I'm going after the wolf. I'm going to take him down myself. And maybe I'll kill a sheep in the in the in the process, uh, just because just because it, it feeds me. As one as one seal put it, he sees himself between the between the good and the bad. And when you're in between the good and the bad, you're a little bit good and a little bit bad. And and I think that that is a common feeling. What interferes with your happiness is something preventing you from achieving your goals. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. You can send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And you could do this without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You know, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. And the service is available for clients worldwide. So find the particular expertise you need online and don't limit yourself to the counselors located near you. And they have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma. So if you want to start living a happier life today, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. And you can join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash m54. So Jason and I have restarted this fitness crew that we have. And, and one of the things that we do as part of this group is we like to get a lot of steps in. And what I've been doing is going on audible.com, um, which is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. And you could use this service too. It's really cool. You could find the largest selection of audiobooks ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, business, motivational titles, and more. They have over a thousand titles, but they don't just have audiobooks. They also have podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, and exclusive Audible originals that you won't find anywhere else. With an Audible membership, you can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The Audible app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. You can listen across devices without losing your spot. Uh, right now, Majority 54 listeners can get a free 30-day trial when you visit audible.com slash majority54 or text majority54 to 500-500. Again, You'll get a 30-day free trial of Audible when you visit audible.com slash majority54 or just simply text majority54 to 500-500. So the mentality that says, you know, there's bad guys and there's good guys and we're a little bit in between and we're in the middle to protect the good guys, that is a lot different from what counterinsurgency uh, doctrine and, and the evolution 
of the idea of how to how to fight these asymmetrical wars has arrived at, which is sort of a, you know, you got to go in, you got to uh, protect the community and you got to provide for the community. You got to, you know, this whole idea that we got to see the people as human beings in the area where we fight. But when you put everything into a good guys, bad guys, we're in the middle mentality, how does that affect the way that these operations are conducted? Based on our conversations, Eddie Gallagher sees all of this as good versus evil. Um, it, like he, as he says, it, it, it is righteous. And it's not for me to tell him that the way he views the world is wrong. But I think, I think that way of looking at things, good versus evil, is the core of a lot of the problems here. Because the guy that, you know, this whole trial was built around, this ISIS prisoner that, that Eddie Gallagher had allegedly stabbed and was later acquitted for, that guy's line was good versus evil, too. When the line is good versus evil, you think that wherever you are is the right side of the line. I think that allows people to push the line, to, 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 to cross the line because they think that they're the good guys and it's OK. And I, and I think I think that's where you get into trouble. I remember I, I had an opportunity to briefly work with folks in, in special ops and and even just just as a as an intelligence officer going through training, you learn a lot about their capabilities and that kind of thing. And what we were always taught initially in the you know early years after 9-11 was that one of the primary functions of special operations was actually to go in and to train fighting forces on the ground. Like that was one of the ideas. Yeah, they had to be able to self-protect. They had to be, you know, some of the greatest warriors in history in order to do that because they were going to be there basically unprotected, but that functionally they were there to make the fighting force that we were allied with on the ground more potent and more capable. And we've gotten so far away from that. And it feels to me, looking back on it, like it's basically Donald Rumsfeld didn't want to have to, as you said, didn't want to have to mobilize conventional units and take basically the political hit or, or use up the capital of deploying more and more people. So if you can't do that, just use special forces as if they're conventional forces. Yeah, use special forces and also use what they're particularly good at to fight these particular types of wars. The technology, you know, in once uh, in, in 2001 was much different and much more advanced than it had been before. So a lot of people focus on like on like drone warfare, right? But but in fact, it really allowed the SEALs to do what it what it is that they were doing covertly, which and still do, which is essentially but it really was intensely uh, ticked up after 9-11 was basically manhunting. Uh, you know, there was, you know, the, famously, there's a deck of cards with all the bad guys on it that they were looking for in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they would and they would they would wake up at one in the morning and they would get their they would get their mission brief and they would get the name of the guy they were looking for. Here's his house. Here's what he was wearing this morning. Here's his face. Here's who's going to be home when you when you blow down the door. Um, and so it, you know, in their words themselves, to many of the SEALs I spoke to, it, it, it very much felt like it was more like SWAT team. It's a very personalized, as one SEAL put it, you know, you can, sm you can smell their breath when you're killing them. And that is a different kind of warfare than just, you know, World War II or doing six months and then you're out or you're drafted and then you go back to your regular life after two years. It's a very different thing we're asking. And there are very, I think we're finding that there are very different consequences. Well, and even with the SWAT team comparison, I mean, the SWAT team, it's again, it's special weapons and tactics, right? Like if you're on the SWAT team, you don't go knocking a door every single day. And, and if you're deployed 
you know, in this role as an operator, you're knocking in doors every single day, which brings me to, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me uh, so far in the episodes um, that have dropped so far is the reference to the idea that there's this shock in the military, uh, you know, at DOD about the fact that the suicide rate among uh, operators is what I think twice the, the regular military, which is much higher than the rest of the population. And when I heard it, I thought, and I, look, and you know, for context, I mean, I'm somebody who's gotten treatment for post-traumatic stress uh, and was uh, you know spurred to do that by suicidal ideation, all coming out of my deployment to Afghanistan. But so when I heard that, with that context, I thought, well, duh, right? I mean, like, like the fact that the DOD is like, geez, I, I don't know why they seem to have a higher rate. Well, because they're in combat every day for their career, right? For their career. I mean, you know, Eddie Gallagher was, uh, had eight combat, uh, seven to eight combat deployments, which is an enormous number. I mean, they train for 18 months just to get there, and then they're there for six months. You know, during Vietnam, I think, that, I think the, the record before that, there was a guy, there was an, uh, I, I believe he was a, a, an enlisted officer who went to Vietnam five times. He called himself and they called him the Puerto Rican Rambo. Like it was this really big deal. And now people are going – I talked to a special operator who was on his 15th deployment when I talked to him. That it is not the sort of temporary, this is something we have to do uh, in order to defend democracy or whatever type thing anymore. This is a, this is a lifestyle and it is truly unknown how it was going to affect people. And I think they're starting to find out. Well, and then the other piece that was really interesting to me is – I think you were talking to to one of the military psychologists who was talking about the fact that these these guys, even more so than the rest of us in the military, have a tendency to ignore mental health signals. But analogous to, they have literally been trained to ignore pain. And I think we we sometimes miss that that you you are trained to ignore these things. Not even to not even trained to ignore them. They they find I think they how seals are selected is through buds, and so basically it's like forget what you think. Like you know, basic training or boot camp is like buds is. It is not designed to find the smartest. It's not designed to find the fastest or the strongest. It is designed to find the ones that will not stop, no matter what. What they put them through during this time is insanely difficult. Just miles and miles of open ocean swimming and calisthenics and log lifting and boat lifting. And it's just, you know, this incredibly intense atmosphere and they make it really easy to quit. They put a, a bell in the middle of the in the middle of the base. Uh, and if you want to quit, you go ring the bell three times. You put your helmet down, you walk away. And so and they and they end up like 200 people will be in a buds class and they'll end up with five who graduate like they just and though it's those five who have that quality of tenacity of never quitting, which, of course, is the most important thing if you are in the middle of nowhere with 15 other guys and a helicopter's not coming and one of you shot and uh, and you're fighting off, you know, you know, 30 other guys like so not that it's so important in that circumstance. But you could see how it would lead to never quitting, you know, deploying over and over when you shouldn't be, when your head is telling you not to. People people have died in buds because they, they do underwater 
um, they do, you know, obviously a lot of the training they do is in the water and they do underwater swims in the pool. And, 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 and they're so determined to not quit that, you know, once you I talked to you said once or twice a class, people will black out underwater because they refuse to surface and people have died in that way. And so that is the type of person that they're finding who have that core DNA. And then they're training them for years and now decades to foster that. And it just um, it seems like it's a hard thing to reverse when it's time to reverse it. What that made me think about what was this thing that I talk about a lot in the military, uh, whether you're talking about special operations or, or not, and it is this necessary brainwashing, right? And and I'll preface this by saying that the conversation that happens about post-traumatic stress or about any sort of service-connected mental health issue is this continual thing of, well, we have to get it across to our veterans that it is strong, not weak, to ask for help, Right. And the thing is, is, I feel like that message has been gotten across. It's great that people said it so much and they continue to say it. But what your podcast, what the line gets at in this in this part of it, in this theme of it, is that what we are taught, whether special operator or otherwise, is there's always somebody who has it worse. This is not that big of a deal. And that's actually super important because if you don't if you don't teach that to soldiers and to sailors and to Marines and airmen, then they won't go do the stuff that they got to do, right? I mean, obviously what, what uh, the SEALs went through is, is, is much more difficult than what I went through. But like for me as an intelligence officer, I had to keep going back into rooms with people who I didn't know whether they intended to kidnap or kill me. And I was essentially by myself with no backup. But I didn't think that was that big of a deal, you know, until I got therapy a couple years ago. But like in order to keep doing that, I had to really, truly believe it's not a big deal. And the genius, I guess, is for lack of a better term, of military training is that even the guy with 15 deployments, they've been able to to make him believe that what he's doing is not that big of a deal. And there's really no there's really no method for turning it off. You want them to, you know, maybe you've deployed five times, like, please, t you know, go back to civilian life, you know, go back to your family. And, and you just hear it over and over that there is this responsibility that they had that has been inculcated in them that that their brothers, literal brothers, it feels like um, are out there without them. And that it's it's almost too much to bear to think that they would get hurt or maybe killed with you sitting back at home, you know, drinking a beer, watching TV, it just doesn't compute, it seems, for a lot of a lot of SEALs. And and they haven't been given the wherewithal or the tools to sort of, like you say, like you say, turn it off. Well, and that brings me to, I think, one of the other really important themes that you follow, which is moral injury. And, and you approach it. What I liked about it was I felt like you approached it in two ways. You know, I think... The first way is the more conventional way, which is the moral injury being you made a decision or you were you were part of some activity that something that you know was deeply immoral and not consistent with how you view your character occurred. And I've felt I feel for anybody who was in a situation where they made a mistake or they they didn't know all the facts and 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 um, and someone innocent was killed. But the other part that you got at and you just alluded to that I thought was so important is the feeling of I didn't do enough. And I think that that is one of the least understood parts of what people call survivor's guilt. But I think you appropriately put it into moral injury because it's ongoing. 
Yeah. It's injury It's injury to your soul, right? To your conscience, which is a hard thing to talk about, right? Because it's not, it's very squishy, but it's what's going on. Uh, and especially even in, in the context of the Gallagher case where where the, 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 the SEALs from his platoon say that they allege that they saw Gallagher shooting civilians. Those were part of, uh, of the allegations and those were part of the charges that he was tried for, regardless of whether or not you think Gallagher did that or not, and and the trial says one thing, but like the 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 key to that is that regardless of what you think about Gallagher, the people in that platoon were then in the position to feel like they had to stop him, and so they had a mission. It was to clear ISIS from Mosul, and then they had the secondary mission they felt, which was put on by themselves, is that they were they they believed that Gallagher was targeting civilians as a sniper. They were telling the officer in charge and he wasn't doing anything. And so now they felt it was their responsibility to stop him from shooting civilians. And so they would shoot warning shots so that civilian so that he wouldn't have a chance to shoot them for real, according to their their statements. And they would do things like, you know, not give Gallagher the the altitude density cards that would help a sniper dial in a more precise shot. Literally trying to make him ineffective so that he wouldn't be able to kill civilians. One of the allegations in the trial is that is that he uh, Gallagher shot an old man and he was on trial for that in Mosul and um and one of his one of the seals in the platoon, you know, he 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 wrote down in his journal that day not that Gallagher had done this thing, but that he had failed to stop Gallagher from doing that thing. And on that day, he took his pen and he he characterized what had happened as his own moral failure. It's real, and it, it impacts these guys for a long time. It, it also, I think, brings me to one of the other parts of, of the pod so far that really struck me. And maybe this was publicly known, and I just had missed it. I'm not sure. But that they informed the members of the court, the jury, of the court-martial, of what the rules of engagement were on the ground in Mosul at that time. But they the guy came in with a hand with a with a briefcase handcuffed to him pulled it out let them read it and then i assume did not let them keep it to refer to it later and then walked out so that nobody else would know what they were yeah and you know just on the theme of the line that there's a line that you don't cross but i mean just the idea that rules of engagement would be one shifting constantly but two classified I mean, what is the your ability to like orient yourself to where the where the moral center is? That makes it very difficult. As the Navy psychiatrist uh, in in the show says, if you if you can't see the line, you don't know which side of it you're on, and that that can lead to a lifetime of guilt. And absolutely, I mean, and the rules of engagement, like. You know, the the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, at the time said consistently over and over again during the Battle for Mosul, the rules of engagement have not changed. The rules of engagement have not changed. Um, and because they're classified, it's it's and for good reason. You don't want the enemy to know what the rules of engagement are. Right. But if they're classified, there's no way to, to check that. Um, but then and then the, the 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 United States government and the Department of Defense would not release the audio for the trial. We were able to get our hands on it unredacted. Uh, and you hear 
uh, in testifying, uh, the, the, the guy who was in charge of, the, um, of, of spec ops in Mosul says very clearly that the rules of engagement changed for Mosul. He just says it on, on, on the stand under oath. Um, and so it really makes you look back and say, well, I mean, which is part of the part of the appeal, I think, for the military to use special operations is because it's, it's very much under the radar. Americans don't know what's happening. The, the war, the war, the war in Iraq was supposed to have end, ended in 2011. This was 2017. You know, it was supposed to be uh, AAA advise, assist, and accompany. Uh, but in fact, the, again, this, this, the, the guy who was in charge of, of of the task force in Mosul said that they were in combat every day. And you realize that advise, assist, and accompany is a word game. It actually makes it all the more remarkable that I think it was seven of them, right? The, the seven seals who ultimately came forward to talk about what they had seen their platoon chief do in that environment, it makes it all the more remarkable because there was no way that they were thinking, if we don't say something, this will all come back on us. Even in that environment where there would be no formal cost, no formal discipline to them, and where the moral line had moved around so much, what they saw was so injurious to their soul that they couldn't move forward with their lives without saying something. And not not only that, I mean, they it, Mosul was a success. Like they had cleared ISIS from Mosul. Like those seals came back heroes. You know, they were getting promotions, and like some of them were were trying out to be on development group on SEAL Team Six. And keeping their mouth shut would have been the smartest thing professionally, and probably socially for them uh, to to just keep your mouth shut and move forward. But but something about it. They couldn't move past it. It's the moral part of it that that is very real and and is becoming so much clearer when war is not an interruption in life. When war is is for two decades is the, is how we live our lives. You, you you realize you can't just treat it as the aberration. Now that now this is who we are. This is what we do. And I think that's part of what made them come forward. Finally, I'm just really curious to know this. How did you get? Eddie Gallagher to talk to you uh, the way that he did, and what has his reaction been uh, since? Because you know it's not as if he and his and his family have been shy about trying to litigate all this in the media and 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 in any way shy of media attention. But I, I just an investigative look at this that seeks to you know try and get as close to what the truth is as possible. I was surprised that they said, yeah, we will absolutely participate in that. So I'm curious as to how that's come out and how it came to be. You know, it's not easy to convince people to talk like that, uh, especially in the way that I want them to talk and the the way that I'm going to talk to them, which is very – like I'm going to ask them. I'm going to ask them what I want to know. Like it's it's not – I mean at one point you're like – you asked him, you go, are you an asshole? (laughs) I mean it was was pretty direct (laughs) – yeah, and yeah, for sure. And and because that was, you know, right, that's what somebody had testified that he was an asshole to his men like like a lot of, you know, people in charge are assholes to their men and I think it sort of gets to the root of what was going on. You know, it, it took a while. Uh, I, I basically, uh, you know, we had some conversations and then we, me and my producer uh, flew down there right before the pandemic and spent an evening with them with, with no, no requirements. 
Yeah, no preconditions. We were like, we'll we'll leave. Like, but but if you guys agree, we'll record the next day. And and we spent like six hours with them and just talked. And I think a lot of it was that we were going to look at the seals in general because the seals, how much the seals are suffering in so many ways because of the wars. And and I, and I think that was appealing to him. And then otherwise, um, I think you know, I think he's emboldened um, because of the way the trial turned out. And I and I think this was he. I think he's probably trying to uh, look to the future and and set whatever record he wants to set straight. Straight. It was fascinating. A lot of people there's there's a big push to like not humanize. Like even if a lot of people think like oh he's a war criminal even though he was acquitted on all on almost all the charges, people still hang on to that and don't want you to humanize. They use that word as if it's as if it's an option. As it, as it, you know what I mean? Like he's a human. Well, and no matter what you think about Eddie Gallagher, there is value in understanding how Eddie Gallagher becomes Eddie Gallagher, and For how sure. and how things end up going down the way they did. And and that's why you know I thank you for for putting this pod together because we have come to a point where America doesn't go to war, our military goes to war, and the overuse of special operations and of, of anything covert, including the intelligence community, uh, allows, allows civilians to create a distance between themselves and this cinematic idea of what they are led to believe are basically, you know, invincible ninjas going about doing very clean, very humane work of war, which you know, there to go back to where you closed, like there are human beings beneath all of that. And, and I appreciate um, the work that you did to, to bring light to that. Oh, thanks. It's been, it's been fascinating. Amazing. I learned a hell of a lot. So tell people where they can find it and where they can find you like on social media and that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm at uh, D Taberski on Twitter. And then uh, The Line is an Apple original podcast. It's their first and you can find it on Apple Podcasts and uh, most places that podcasts are available. Thank you to Dan for having that conversation uh, and for the podcast that he's created. I encourage everybody to go and listen to the line. Uh, it is an illuminating listen. In that vein, for Grab an Oar this week, um, the Murph Challenge is coming up. Uh, it's on Memorial Day every year. Look, you can look up the workout. Ravi and I do it. Admittedly, it's sort of insane. So I'm not going to tell you you got to go do the workout. The reason I'm bringing it up uh, is because... The whole thing benefits a foundation uh, named after Michael Murphy, uh, who was a Navy SEAL who um, lost his life in Afghanistan. Uh, and the foundation awards scholarships to the children of fallen special operators. So in keeping with the theme of the conversation we had with Dan, um, I think that giving to the Michael Murphy Foundation uh, is probably a good use of your dollars this week. Next week, we're going to get back to a more regular episode, so we would encourage you to leave us a voicemail uh, with any topic that you'd like to hear us address uh, or any comments that you'd like to hear us respond to. The number is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram, and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allen. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander.
Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.